Good morning, Grace. How is everyone doing this morning? Yeah, it sounds like you're doing really great. I'm going to try that again. How's everyone doing this morning? There we go. That's a little bit better. I'm back from vacation, and you know, you can't go on vacation without sharing some photos, right? So I'll give you a little intro as we transition back. It's just really, it's just an excuse because I... I'm rusty from being out of the pulpit for a month, and I, I'm not sure my message is going to be all good, so I'll, I'll show some pictures, so at least you walk away for some, with some cool pictures today. All right, so we uh, took off in July. Oftentimes, we head uh, out of town for a little bit, uh, try to get away from the heat for a little while, and this year, we, we, we did kind of a monster road trip, probably the longest we've ever done, 5,400 miles we put on the car. You know it's a good trip. This, this is cool. This is a great trip. When you change the oil on your van the day before you leave, and it's dinging that it needs to be changed again when you're coming back into town. That's a good road trip. So let me show you just a few photos. We headed off. Uh, this, is where, this, is, this is us before we left at the driveway. We were pretty happy at that point because we hadn't put any miles on at all. Everyone's looking great. The next photo shows you when we're driving home. Yeah, that's what was. Feet up there, conked out. It's like, doesn't matter, man. We're just dead. Just get us home, dad, as fast as we can. So anyways, it was not pretty on the way home, but we're all still alive. We went to uh, Colorado for a little bit. Carrie's brother and uh, her, his wife and three kids were there for a lacrosse tournament, so we got to connect with some family for a few days, do some hikes. So those are cousins that the kids don't get to see a whole lot. We had a great time uh, with them there, and then we continued and headed up to the northwest, uh, Idaho and uh, Washington. And one of the trips I'd wanted to do for quite a while is take my boys, my older boys, on a backpacking trip, a multi-day backpacking trip. So we summited Mount Baker. You see the top of that glacier, we got to the top of it, and you can see our campsite there, you can you get a perspective, can you see us on the top of the rock there? There's three of us standing there, and our tents are set up, so we spent five days hiking up uh, and getting to the top of Mount Baker, which was an incredible hike, uh, I, I shouldn't be doing that at my age anymore, it's exciting to do it, but it takes like a month to recover from it afterwards, where the boys wake up and they're ready to go at it again, so there's a picture of us all at the top, a really neat experience. 90% of the hike after you get to base camp is on a glacier. And so you have these pickaxes and you're wearing crampons, the spikes, and basically ascending this whole glacier. And it's just incredible views. I wish I could take a lot of time and just show you a whole bunch of pictures. But uh, that was basically our few weeks that we spent in the Northwest uh, enjoying the outdoors. And trust me, it was a lot cooler up there than it was when we came back here. Uh, as we got back into town, but we're always good to be back into our own beds and be back here with everyone, so appreciate the time off. Uh, very thankful for just the staff and the team that we have here at Grace that uh, is able to just keep things going uh, smoothly all summer. Eddie and Adrian did an excellent job with the family plan series, and, and everyone that steps up and serves during that time, I think is such a testimony to the the church that we have here and the kind of people we have serving, uh, that the church can do everything it needs to do regardless of who's here. So that's uh, very important and a huge blessing to us. So good to be back. Transitioning in, let me give you a little bit of overview. We're heading into the fall, obviously. Uh, we have our fall series kicking off in September called Wise Up. 
Uh, it's going to be out of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. So we're going to go through the book of Song of Solomon, which is uh, a song all about uh, romantic sexual love between a man and a woman. Uh, it was a book actually in its day uh, that the rabbis didn't even let their boys read until they were 30 years old. So I'm just telling you, it's going to be smoking hot here this fall. Uh, we were going to call it Fifty Shades of Grace, but we thought that title... <laughs> probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go over very well, so we're just going to stick to a Song of Solomon, and we're going to wise up about those relationships as we go. So it's going to be uh, that aspect, and then we're going to take passages out of the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and basically the two, what I think are two core issues that we struggle with in America today, and our culture struggles with, is the area of sex and money and how it uh, hurts our relationship. So that's basically the heart of the message or the series is wise up about sex, money, and relationships. And what does God really say about it? And how have we allowed the culture to steal a lot of those values? And we've bought into those lies and missed out on what God intended those things to be. So we hope you get signed up for a small group, begin praying and planning, uh, because I think it's going to be a series that will really impact you uh, across the board at any age level uh, in your relationships and how you relate to both uh, your sexual life and your uh, financial resources. Today, however, we kick off a new series titled Timeline. All through August, uh, we're going to take the book of Daniel, or just chapter 9 in Daniel, for three weeks, and then we'll follow it up with Matthew chapter 24, uh, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus kind of expounds on what he talked about in Daniel 9 to his disciples uh, in that time. And we're going to take a look at just some principles and some uh, ideas that God talks about the future and what's to come. So as we dive in today to this, it's a series that talks about the future and prophecy, but there's some really key things that we want to touch on and understand uh, before we jump into it, because a lot of prophecy and, and a lot of how people relate to it today uh, is not healthy. And so I love how Daniel 9 starts with a, one of the greatest prayers in the whole Bible, and from that... God begins to reveal his greater plan to Daniel. So we're going to take a few weeks to look at Daniel chapter 9, uh, where God reveals a, a big outline, kind of a big 40,000-foot view of, of uh, the future and the end times to Daniel. And then we'll take a look at uh, a chapter in Matthew where Jesus elaborates on that a little bit with his disciples and try to understand what they meant in their context and to the audience that they were speaking to and how they relate to us today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be here the next three weeks as we work through the first 19 verses today, and then we'll dive into the prophecy the next couple weeks and see what that says. But today is about context and understanding how we relate to prophecy and how Daniel related to it, and even in his particular time. So Daniel chapter 9, we're going to go through verses 1 uh, to 19 today. They'll come up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, or if you grab one of the chair Bibles in uh, the seat in front of you, you can flip it open to the page number that's indicated in your worship guide. I'd encourage you to do that so you know where this passage is at your Bible, in your Bible, so you can go back to it during the week or, or look at it if you have any other further questions later on. Let's pray. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the context in which da Daniel wrote this and why that's so important to understanding what God spoke to him and how he responded to God. Let's pray. Father, 
It's just good to gather with your people and to worship you. Lord, in particular, as we just even open up this book, the Bible, that's the oldest book really that we have access to like this is a phenomenal thing that we can do is open it up and read about what was happening several thousand years ago. And Lord, in Daniel's time, they couldn't worship freely like we could now. He had to go back into his home and kind of close the doors and and pray to you in private. And even at times in his life, he got in trouble for doing that. And yet, Lord, he followed you faithfully and you used him mightily and you knew exactly what you were doing when you placed Daniel as well as his people, the Israelites, where they were in that setting. So, Lord, my my prayer would be that as we, as a nation, experience the freedoms that we have now but are fearful of maybe what the future has for us, and rightly so, with changes taking place, but we would not have a fear without hope. Lord, that we would understand that no matter how bad it might get, that you are always in control. And as Daniel understood, you put kings in place and you remove them in your perfect timing. So Lord, make us a people who aren't known for panicking and freaking out and and going crazy when things start changing, but have such a settled, courageous confidence in the God whom we worship that come hell or high water, Lord, we look to you. We love you and we praise you and we just pray that you will speak to your church today and through these weeks as we seek to understand um, your plan for the future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're jumping into Daniel, obviously in the middle of the book, so it's important to get some context and understand that Daniel is a unique book in that it has both narrative, telling the story of Daniel and his companions as they went into exile, as well as prophecy, where God was speaking to him and through him about things that would come in the future. And we open up to chapter 9, which is kind of midway uh, through the book, but in terms of what's going on, I want to set the context a little bit so you understand what Daniel was saying and, and why what he's doing here is so important. Daniel uh, was, was brought into exile when the Israelites were brought into exile about probably 60 to 66 years or so earlier than when this was written. Daniel was a teenager when the Israelites were first exiled in what would have been 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar from the Babylonians came in and, and started sieging uh, Jerusalem the southern kingdom, and did that three different times in 605 and 597 and 586 was the final one when they destroyed everything and took everything back. And Daniel was part of that first group in 605 that was taken captive and brought into Babylon from the very beginning. He was a teenager at that time, and oftentimes what would happen in that culture when nations would come in and take over another nation is their first time they would come in and lay siege, they would take the smartest and brightest and most talented people of that nation they were conquering, and they'd bring them back to their own country. 
That would do two things. One is it allow them to leverage the things of those people and their smarts in their own kingdom, but it would also weaken the nation that they just laid siege to, and they'd usually taken a lot of their leaders, and they were kind of left in confusion, so they knew, hey, they'll just let them kind of scramble for a while until we come back to finish the job. And so Daniel was part of that first group. And if you read the beginning of Daniel, you know him and, and three of his friends uh, were taken at that time and they were brought into the the king's kind of training program they were taught the language they were taught the philosophy of babylon and all those kinds of things and they were brought up to be leaders in that babylonian kingdom now picture this most likely what happened is daniel's parents were wiped out in that first siege they would often kill the older people because they would obviously not make the journey back. It was hundreds of miles for them to trek back to Babylon. So his parents were probably wiped out right before his eyes, taken as a teenage boy to a totally foreign country where he doesn't know the language and doesn't worship the same God. Everything brand new to him. And yet the story tells of Daniel doing what the prophet Jeremiah had commanded the people of Israel to do when God prophesied that they were going to be taken into exile. And we'll talk about why in a little bit. Jeremiah, against the people's wishes, had prophesied saying, God is telling you, you're going into exile. It's going to happen. And when you go to this new land, you seek the welfare of that nation. You do good for them and you seek to build up that nation because their benefit will benefit you here's a pagan nation god wasn't saying that you join in their practices he wasn't saying that you do things just like them but you work if you become slaves there you work for your master for the sake of the good of that community and that nation because when they prosper you will prosper and god's plan wasn't for them to stay there indefinitely and Daniel, what's amazing about this is the book of Daniel and the character of Daniel is a unique character because you really don't see anything negative about Daniel in the whole book. He's one of the few characters that it doesn't reveal some of his flaws, which he had them, but it portrays him as being this model follower of God. And Daniel did just that. He served Nebuchadnezzar, the king who had his parents slaughtered. And he serves him faithfully, so much so that Nebuchadnezzar raises him up to one of the highest positions in his kingdom. When Nebuchadnezzar passes, he serves his son faithfully. Same thing, he's brought right back up. When, when the Babylonian kingdom is, is taken over by the Medes and the Persians, the king that's then set over that region very quickly identifies Daniel as a man of faithfulness and character and raises him up to one of the highest positions, so high that the other people that could have been chosen from are jealous. They create this little edict that the king signs to get Daniel thrown in the lion's den. You know that story? This is Daniel's life. For He's over 80 years old when he writes this passage. Since a teenage boy, he's been serving a pagan king but working heartily as unto the Lord, not unto man. Just that alone teaches us so much about how we need to interact in a nation and in a city that maybe doesn't worship the God whom we worship. Daniel's a model of that character. So here he is. He's 80-plus years old. 
And, and in the beginning of Daniel up to this point, he's seen several visions about the future. And what's unique about it is here's Daniel as an Israelite. All his people, his Israelite people are exiled in Babylon at this time. And God's revealing to him what's going to happen in the future. And he gives him these visions that are all about Gentile nations ruling that area. Not Israel, all these Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. He gives them the four kingdoms that are going to come. And he does that in multiple visions. So here Daniel's very clear about the future of who's going to be ruling. And, and, and he's troubled at the beginning of this chapter. At the end of chapter 8, he's sickened. He's going, God, where are we in this? You made these great promises to us, your Jewish people. And all you revealed to me at this point is how Gentiles are going to reign this world Time and time again. He predicted the Medo-Persian conquering of Babylon that takes place in this book. He predicted the Greeks taking over from the Medes and Persians and Alexander the Great coming. And then Rome coming in and conquering that. And so Daniel's seeing all these visions and seeing all these Gentiles ruling and, and nowhere is he seeing anything about his own people. Eighty-eight some years old Daniel is. He's been in exile his whole life. And at this point, he's broken, he's crushed, and he's going, God, are you ever going to fulfill your promise to us? And so he gets on his knees here, and he begins this chapter. We see Daniel in prayer. And, and I titled this, or put is your main title, because I think this is really what it's all about. It's not so much about the prophecy, even though the prophecy is important. We'll get into it in the weeks to come. But what I see in this first section is this idea of how are we to pray in times of uncertainty? I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, in a job change. I'm talking about uncertainty on a large scale. How are we to pray when, when we don't know where our nation is going, when we don't know where our city is going, we don't know where large groups of people and what's happening in the world is just in turmoil? How do you pray when you find yourself in those times? Because that's exactly where Daniel is, both personally and corporately as a people, when he gets on his knees and has this conversation with God. So if you have your Bible with you or you're going to follow along on the screen, let's jump in and, and look at four key things I think are revealed in this passage about how we can pray when we're in times of uncertainty. Daniel starts here, he says, in the first year of Darius, the son of As Ahasuerus, the, a descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Hang on a second. I gotta, my wife's going to kill me for doing this. These are my, I got three of these for $1.99 at Walmart. <laughs> my eyes are starting to go. Uh, I'm going to be 30 this month, so, you know, sometimes your <laughs> eyes start to get bad when you get to that age. So I'll, I promise I'll get you some nicer looking ones in the future. You won't have to look at me in these glasses anymore. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descendant by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit what's going on here. This is described in the rest of the book of Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, and then his son, who had ruled there, they were overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. So now he's talking about this first king that was set over that region from the Medes and the Persians, and his name is Darius. So he's giving us a date stamp here, which is how we know it's been about 66 years or so of the exile that the Israelites have been in exile. 
In the first year of his reign, he says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so let me, let me give you this first point, and then we're going to take a look at some passages that kind of show us what Daniel was going on in Daniel's life and how he came to this point. My, my prayers in times of certainty, the first point we need to understand is my prayers in times of certain, uncertainty should be based on God's promises, should be based on God's promises. You see, Daniel starts off by saying he was searching the scriptures. He was looking to what God had said to his people to help understand the times and what was going on. Why is this happening? He starts with God's word. And as he's searching and looking through God's word, he comes across, he says books in here because they didn't have the Bible bound like we have now. They were scrolls or individual scrolls. And so he's looking through the prophets because he probably remembers Jeremiah the prophet preaching prior to the exile. And so he's looking through there to say, has God said anything through these guys about what's going to happen to us? And as he's searching through it, he comes across some promises in that passage. And those promises reveal God's plan for him. And then he prayed accordingly. Now let me show you some of those promises that Jeremiah spoke about that Daniel was probably reading. We're going to be able to read some of the words, the same exact words that Daniel probably read back then. So Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 12 say the following. Let me flip to it myself. Jeremiah 25 says this, Therefore, now this is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet before the Israelites went into exile, so he was speaking these things about 70 years prior to Daniel right now. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my word, so this is Jeremiah speaking to Israel while they're still in their land, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. So here you see this prophecy uh, that God's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to exile his people. Jeremiah 29 goes on to say this as well. Uh, in ver chapter 29, verses 10 and following, he says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So what God's saying now through Jeremiah is not only that Babylon is coming, to bring them into exile, but he's saying, this is how long you're going to be stuck there. And after 70 years of, of exile, and we're going to learn why it was 70 years that God said they were going to be out of their land, God says, I'm going to visit you again, and I'll fulfill to you my promise. Look what he says. And bring you back to this place, meaning back to Israel. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but that verse was never intended for a graduation card. 
even though I know that's probably one of the most popular ones on there. We, as Christians, totally misuse this and quote this passage all the time. It was spoken very specifically to the Israelites in not very good circumstances. He's saying, hey, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. Maybe high school or school is like exile for 18 years, but I know the plans I have for you, son. I'm going to bring... And I'm not saying we shouldn't use them. I bought cards with that verse on it as well. But this is one of my pet peeves when we take verses out of their context and try to get them to think that they're speaking to you or to me rather than seeing the greater principle behind them. And this verse is written in the context of God's people being disciplined and sent into exile and, and revealing to him that, hey, I'm not done with you even though you're going through a very difficult time. And he's going to give you a future and a hope. And he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. So Daniel was reading these words. And as he came across them, they encouraged him. They encouraged him to get on his knees and seek this God who had made this promise. Think of it. He was about at the 66th year mark when these words were penned in Daniel, when this was taking place. And he'd read that 70 years of exile were for his people. This is what I love about Daniel. This is what I love about how he prayed. Is unlike what I often see in, in so-called modern-day prophets, and I'm not bashing people who maybe have a prophetic gift nowadays. I don't know one way or the other. I just know that every time I've seen anything about prophets in the Scripture, God made it very clear. If what they say is not consistent with God's Word and it doesn't come about in God's timing, it says you're to stone them. They're false prophets. Now, if anyone wants to proclaim themselves as a prophet today, more power to them. I'm just saying if you want that privilege, then take the responsibility that when you blow it, you get stoned. I'm just saying. comes with the job. It's not my guidelines. It's God's guidelines. But this is what I love about Daniel. He wasn't projecting his agenda about what he wanted in his ministry with his big name and lights and then prophesying for God to bless his agenda and do what he wanted him to do. Daniel searched the scriptures to see what had God said, what did he say was going to happen, and I'm going to seek him according to his will and his plan, and I'm going to humble myself to be used by him, whatever he wants to do. You know, I've seen and have seen it here one of the most recently uh, here in our city is the big I-35 prophetic conference. It went on a number of years ago, and I was engaged in some of the meetings, and it got to a point where I just I couldn't associate with it anymore because of how much they abused the Word of God. You've maybe seen some of these I-35 prophetic conference stuff, and what they did is they took out of Isaiah 35. If you read Isaiah 35, which Isaiah 35 is a chapter of the prophet Isaiah talking again about something similar to this where God is bringing his people, Israel, back into the land after a long time of them being scattered. He's talking about the Messianic kingdom, something we'll talk about later in this series, when God brings all Israel back and they repent and they return and Jesus rules over them for a period here on this earth. That's what Isaiah 35 is talking about. And these so-called prophets were saying that Isaiah 35 talks about a highway of holiness. And since it's Isaiah 35, you can take the I from Isaiah and the 35 from the chapter, and you get I-35. 
And God was telling them that there's going to be a revival on the I-35 corridor. Of course. I mean, that's totally logical. Even though the chapter and verses in the Bible never even came into the Bible, they weren't part of the original Bible. They weren't brought in until the 13th centuries when chapters were finally put in there just so that we could help organize them. And I'm sure Sir Langton, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who put the chapters in there, I know in the 13th century when he was organizing them, he said, I got to make sure that that section in Isaiah lands on chapter 35. Because a a couple centuries from now, there's going to be a revival down there. And they're going to need to use that verse to support it. That's hogwash. That's taking a person's personal agenda to run and control people and get them to do what they want them to do, rather than stopping and saying, God, what does your word say about your plan? And I'll submit myself to it in your agenda rather than using it to accomplish my agenda. That's what Daniel did. Daniel is held up as a a model prophet, not because he went around boasting and manipulating people, but because he humbly submitted himself to God's plan, even when it wasn't favorable to himself. Think about it. 66 years, his parents killed in front of his face, probably brutally slaughtered, and he humbly serves the very people who did that to him because God said, this is what you should do. My prayers in times of uncertainty should be based on God's promises not on my personal agenda. Second thing we see is David continues to pray. And listen to what he says after that. After he establishes God's promise as the basis of it, he then recites kind of what's happening. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, he said, seeking him by prayer with fasting and sackcloth and athens. And here's his prayer. He says, I prayed to the Lord that my God, uh, to the Lord my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, But to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Here's your second principle about how we pray in times of uncertainty, is I should confess my disobedience. My prayers in times of uncertainty should confess my disobedience. One of the things we love to do is criticize everyone else. Oh, the president this, this group that. We're just, especially as Christians, we're the worst at this. We judge and condemn everyone else, and we don't realize that the Scripture says it's not our job to condemn them. 
They're already condemned, just like you and I were when we were outside of Christ. Their condemnation is already done. We don't have to condemn and push anymore. We should be proclaiming to them a way that they can step out of it. We should be acknowledging the fact of how we've contributed to it in our own sinfulness, in our own brokenness, and realizing that God's going to work through us, his people, and not through reforming our government, not through reforming all those who are outside of his people. We're often the problem. Very rarely, if ever, do you see in the scripture God revealed to the prophets, oh man, if those Egyptians, if those other unpagan nations, if they just get their act together, I could finally do what I want to do here in this earth. It never happens. He's always speaking to his own people and saying, if we would be the people that he redeemed us to be, then the things that he wants to do in this world will happen. Daniel did that. Look at, at some of the things that he was talking about, obviously, in this passage. Leviticus 25 goes back to ultimately what he's talking about is how the prophets, which if you read the prophets, all they're doing is repeating what's written in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All the principles that are there that they made an agreement with before they went into the land, the Israelites continued to walk away from. And all the prophets did was remind them, hey guys, you made this covenant with God. He said he'd be faithful to you, but you have to follow him in these ways. And that's all the prophets did. It was constantly remind him of it. Let me show you one simple passage that shows this, but also very clearly shows why it was a 70-year period that they were in exile. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 3, says this. Uh, as God's given them, these are before they went into the promised land. He's telling them how to conduct themselves when they're in the promised land. He says, for six years you shall sow your field. They were farmers then, so they should use the, the, the ground for six years. He says, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. Okay, so that's what God told him, one of the things he told him to do. And what he was doing, this is both spiritual and practical, if you know anything about farming. You realize that a lot of farmers, they rotate their crops because crops seep the elements and the, the, the different nutrients out of the ground, and eventually it can't grow very well. Well, when you let the land rest for a year, those things are restored. So this is both a practical principle for them, but also a spiritual one, because God said in that sixth year, I will abundantly bless you to the point where you'll have everything you need to get through the seventh year. It was an element of trust. He was teaching his people, will you trust me to take care of you, even from the very beginning? When they didn't, he says in verse 26, or chapter 26 of Leviticus, what would happen if they did not obey him in that particular principle? Let me see if I can find it. In, uh, in chapter, or verse 33 of 26, this will come up here as well, and he says this about them if they don't follow that. He says, And I will scatter you among the nations, I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land will be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Now here's what's amazing about both Daniel 
and about this passage and God's promises. It was approximately 490 years that the Israelites were in the promised land before this exile hit. And not once did they obey the command to let the land rest on the seventh year. Guess how many Sabbaths that is that they failed to obey? Seventy of them. Guess how long they were exiled outside the land? Seventy years. So the land rested as they learned to trust God in that process. And that's just one of the promises that God made to them. Daniel, what's beautiful about his prayer is he humbly associates himself with the sins of his people and confesses them. Even though the whole book of Daniel portrays him as this incredibly godly man, when it comes to his prayer, he's not picking on Nebuchadnezzar. He's not ripping on Darius the king. He associates himself and his people as the greatest problem for why the world is as it is because they are God's chosen instruments to bring about change, and they're not obeying him. They're not trusting God. He never expects pagans to trust God. He says, we're his people. We're the ones that have seen him, been redeemed to him. Why aren't we? And he goes on in in the passage that follows and says the following as he continues in his prayer. He says, and the curse and the oath, in verse 12, The curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Here's my third point for you. Is my prayers in times of uncertainty should acknowledge God's love and righteousness. Should acknowledge God's love and righteousness. Did I skip point number two? No, okay. So we confess our disobedience. We acknowledge God's love and righteousness. What's awesome about this is Daniel recognized that God's discipline in this passage was a testament to his righteousness as well as his faithfulness. Daniel doesn't shy away from discipline. He doesn't go, oh my goodness, you're so harsh, God. Instead, he embraces it and goes, wow, it's your discipline. You're doing exactly what you promised, exactly what you said in the scriptures. Instead of that turning him bitter against God, it causes him to draw close to God because Daniel realized two things. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is righteous and just. 
He is faithful to his promises. But if he is faithful to discipline us when we disobey, guess what he's going to do when we repent and turn back to him? He's going to do exactly as he promised and restore us. He's going to show mercy and he's going to forgive us just as he has promised over and over and over again in the scriptures. See, I think this is one of the biggest problems we have as Christians is we've become some of the most arrogant people on the earth. And we snub our noses at others rather than humbly recognizing how broken and ugly and wicked we are and would be were it not for the mercy and grace of God. Trust me, arrogantly preaching at the world doesn't do nearly as much as humbly acknowledging the brokenness and need you have for God to change you in this world. Daniel recognized that. That's one of the reasons why I believe his character is so held in such high esteem throughout the scriptures because he recognizes God's righteousness and that everything we're experiencing, we have coming. We deserve and more. And he pleads for God's mercy because he knows if he's faithful to justice, he's also going to be faithful to mercy. Look at how he ends this prayer. I love the ending to it because it really captures everything. He says, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. What's the basis of Daniel's prayer? Not because I've done anything. You don't ever see in Daniel, well, God, I've gone to church for you know, the last three months. I haven't missed. In fact, I was, at, I was there twice once in one day. And I'm giving and I'm serving. I'm doing all this. God, you owe me. You owe me this new job. You owe me this bigger house. He never leverages his own righteousness against God because he recognizes how wretched he is in comparison to the goodness of God. Instead, he bases his plea on the character and mercy of God because he knows who he is apart from him. He says, oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel prays in times of uncertainty like we should pray in times of uncertainty. It should seek to exalt God's name and not mine. To exalt God's name and not mine. That was Daniel's purpose. That was his heart. Because Daniel knew that God's glory was his own good. That when God's lifted up, when he is honored, when he is exalted, it's always in our best interest. Even if that's in a period of exile where his people are being disciplined and others are seeing that this God is a holy God, that he's a righteous God, that he does not excuse sin. And at the same time, when they repented, 
that they would restore him. He would restore them to their land. You know, Daniel's one of the great characters and prophets of the Old Testament. I mean, you read this book, and he's a model of godliness in the midst of living and serving a godless nation. And what's so amazing about Daniel is after serving so faithfully, as this book reveals, after being so so humble and so faithful and so fervent in, in serving everyone he was put under, instead of being arrogant, he associates himself with all the sins of his people. He puts himself right in there. Even when the people were living unfaithfully and he chose to live faithful, he associates himself with his own people. He wasn't too high or too lofty to recognize that he was part of the problem. You know, Daniel points us to an even greater prophet and an even more humble man. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus also lived in exile because he was exiled from his own home. He was exiled by choice. Daniel and his people were exiled because of punishment. But Jesus chose to walk into exile for you and for me. And he lived on an earth in which the people did not worship his God, the, the nation did not serve his God, and yet he humbly laid down his life so that he could redeem you and me from this broken, exiled world. And after living perfectly and serving faithfully his whole life, instead of being quickly whisked away to heaven, he instead bore our punishment on the cross. He took the exile that you and I deserve. You see, the exile that the Israelites experienced in Babylon is nothing compared to the exile that awaits any person who has rejected Jesus Christ as his Savior. It is an exile that lasts forever, and it is an exile that is so far from God that not one lick of his goodness and his holiness and his mercy will be ever present in that place. And Jesus experienced that place for you and for me so that through him you could be restored to your Father. You see, knowing God's future plan and understanding prophecy is not about being smarter or arrogantly predicting to others what's going to come. Knowing God's future plan should drive you to your knees to pray for God's plan to come about through your life and for you to have a confidence, even in the midst of uncertainty, to risk your temporal possessions to reach others with the promise of what's to come. Imagine a church that looked at prophecy in that way and knew that no matter what was coming, my future is secure. And my God is sure about what he's doing. 
And that prophecy, that knowledge, that comfort, that promise would motivate us to say, I don't need to cling to this world because this world is temporary. Instead, I need to reveal and tell others about what's coming and more so about the God who holds every detail in his hands. Imagine a church where those people were willing to serve faithfully whatever place God might put them, even if it's under a boss who hates God, even if it's in a city that rejects God's principles, even if it's in a nation that continues to write God out of its laws. Imagine a church that said, it doesn't matter what my environment says. I know who holds the future, and I will serve heartily as if I'm serving God himself, not man. Imagine the impact that church would have on its city, in its schools, in its government, in its nation. You see, that's why God tells us these things. So that we might live with courage like Daniel did with courage, even when our environment is not in our favor. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you love us so much that you reveal your future plans to us. And Lord, even doing it through a person, you don't just write them down on a page that we can't relate to. You speak them through a life that we can watch live through a book in your word. Thank you for raising up Daniel to be a man after your own heart, to serve you in uncertain times, and to seek you, even when he was living a life that's, that would never be written out as anyone's desire, to have his parents slaughtered as a child, to be taken into a foreign nation, to have to serve people that he can't respect, because they don't worship you. And yet, God, he serves as a model and he teaches us how we can live in uncertain times. Lord, change us to be more like, not just Daniel, but more like your son who did what Daniel did in spades and made it possible for people like us to have a future and a hope. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.